Well, good morning. It is my pleasure and my privilege to take us through uh, the next section of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be in partway through chapter four today. So if you want to get your Bibles open, get your iPhone app out, whatever it is you re uh, use to read his word, uh, please do that now. And we're only going to be looking at three verses today. That's it. And they are likely to many of you very familiar already, perhaps verses that you have read uh, many times over before. And so my prayer for this morning, my prayer as I've been preparing and pondering these verses myself, myself is that Holy Spirit would just reveal something of the depth and truth of Paul's words to us afresh this morning, that there would be fresh revelation for us to treasure and for us to grab a hold of. So um, I'm just going to open by praying into that now. God, I thank you that your word is living and is active and that these words written almost 2000 years ago have as much relevance to us today as they did then. So God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? And would you give us hearts to discern what you are speaking to us about this morning? Amen. Okay, we're going to pick it up then at verse 10. 10 through 12, we're going to read first of all together. And Paul writes this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's the idea that I want us to pursue this morning, this idea of learned contentment. So let's just remind ourselves then of the context with which Paul is writing these words. So as we know, he's in prison. He's writing these words from prison. And in the Roman prison system, uh, they didn't provide prisoners with food or a clean, safe space. It was down to friends, to family and to humanitarians to provide prisoners um, and to provide for them and to care for them. Otherwise, they would go hungry and be forced to live in increasingly harmful quarters. Now, Paul, um, as a Roman, would have been, um, would have faced better conditions than those of a lower social status. Yet it still would have been his responsibility to maintain himself during his imprisonment and he would have needed help. So the church in Philippi had sent Paul a financial gift with Epaphroditus, who we met in chapter two, if you recall, and we, we will meet again next week. And he could use this gift to buy food and to help meet his basic needs. And so Paul is writing then to thank the Philippians for their generosity and their consideration of him when they had the opportunity to. But note, he wants them to understand him clearly. Although he expresses great joy for this gift, for this financial provision, his joy was not because of a lack that needed to be satisfied by money. So let's just pause there, first of all, and just sit with this idea a little bit. Time and time again in the New Testament, we as followers of the way of Jesus are encouraged to not put our hope, our trust and our belief in money, in possessions. Jesus speaks to the crowds in Luke 12 and he says that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And Paul in 1 Timothy warns us that the love of money is a route to all kinds of evil. 
Now, we don't need to look very hard at our Western materialistic society to see that this approach to money and to possessions is not the dominant message, where the ambition for more is very real. We live in a, a desire over need-based culture where consumption is promoted and satisfaction is meant to be found in that consumption, where aspirations can be expressed through where we live, what we own, what we drive, what we wear, and so on. And we are bombarded with advertising, aren't we, that feeds into that sense of more, better, newer, shinier, a bigger house, a newer car, more money, more possessions. Now, having possessions is not wrong, nor is wanting a bigger house or a pay rise or a newer car. I, for one, would love a car that has got fewer miles on the clock and doesn't have a massive dent in its rear. And I think that is okay. And there actually might be some of us that are experiencing acute lack in this regard. And I really don't want to underplay the difficulty that that can create. Yet it is easy to get drawn into the lie that more, that better, that newer and that shinier can equal fulfillment. And that our pleasure and our joy can be predominantly found in these things and the comfort and, and the comfort that they create. And I think we all have a drive, don't we, whether consciously so or not, to be able to have something outside of ourselves to find fulfillment and contentment in and to have that sense of feeling at peace, to be able to place our satisfaction in something outside of ourselves. And I think that drive is God given. The problem comes when we try and find the fullest experience of that, as we know, in, in people, in circumstances, in, in possessions, in provision. And these things certainly can bring a taste of fulfillment. There is so much in this life to experience and, and enjoy, but they will not in and of themselves lead us to a place of contentment. I don't want to take these verses out of their original context of financial uh, provision and, and possessions, but I, I, want to th I want us to think about Paul's words in this way. All of us at one time or another, probably many times, over our life will be faced with reconciling the need, the ache and the desire to feel contented. That sense of feeling satisfied, of feeling fulfilled, of feeling at peace. Perhaps that desire, that ache is about an ambition for more as we've just talked about. Or perhaps it's something that is far less able to be purchased. A relationship, a family, our health, a sense of purpose, processing and healing from pain or disappointing circumstances. So let's go back to Paul. How can we experience the contentment he describes during all seasons of life? Whether that's full of abundant joy and provision and blessing, or whether it's marked by profound pain and lack, or probably for many of us, the multitude of days that fall somewhere between those two things. The emphasis from Paul in verse 11 is that he has learned how to be content no matter his circumstances. And that phrasing, learned, that, that interests me, that captures my attention because it implies to me that it's not guaranteed and it's not an automatic, instantaneous part of our salvation. Now, at the point of salvation, Paul tells us elsewhere in his letters some amazing truths that are ours to hold at the moment that we are saved, the moment that we give our yes to Jesus. We are new creations. We are righteous and holy. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We are victorious. We are co-heirs. We are chosen. We are his workmanship. That's just in the letters of Paul. 
As we look broad, more broadly throughout scripture, there is so much truth for us to hold of who we are at the point of our salvation. But I can't find that we're contented, not automatically, not by default, not inevitably, it seems to me. There is something for us to learn in the way that Paul did. Moreover, Paul tells us in verse 12 that there is a secret to this learned contentment. And the very next sentence written to the Philippians makes it clear what that secret is. And again, it's a verse that many of you will be very familiar with. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Amplified translation of this verse, which offers multiple English words, uh, which can be applied to the original Greek, um, expands this a lot. Let's read that. I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. Paul has learned who and what it was that could bring him true soul satisfaction. He knew that no level of influence no level of provision, no level of abundance could lead him to that place of true soul satisfaction. So Paul's teaching us here that we don't learn contentment by looking at our circumstances, by looking at our provision, by looking at our possessions. We learn contentment by looking at a person. Paul made dependence on Jesus as the source of his strength and peace central to experiencing contentment recognising his need for him in abundance, recognising his need for him in lack, recognising that Jesus is sufficient for all seasons of life. There's a treasure for us to hold there. There is a learning journey that we are invited on so that we can learn this type of contentment too. Jeremiah Burroughs, who um, was a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, wrote this in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. My brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of this world is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Our immortal soul that is capable of God himself. I first came across his work um, about a year ago at the start of the first COVID lockdown when when for all of us really, like the world as we knew it, suddenly felt a little bit swept away to one degree or another. And I, like I'm sure many of you, uh, had that question put before me of like, where is my contentment? Where do I find my satisfaction? And I came across these words and they rang true for me and resonated with me and have been whirling around my heart and my soul and my spirit and my mind ever since. That immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. You see, what's inside each one of us is a gospel cry, a yearning to know and be known by someone so much greater than ourselves. And for that relationship to be alive, to be real and to be what we centre ourselves around. For us to be able to draw hope peace, strength, wisdom, joy, comfort and courage from that place. I feel that in Paul as I read his words today. He is a soul at rest and at peace, undisturbed and at ease as he faces these seasons of changing provision. 
with learned contentment, all because the gospel cry within him had been answered by the person of Jesus. It seems to me that he deeply understood and experienced the capability of himself as an image bearer of God to have communion and union with him. Let's focus in on one particular phrase from that Amplified version that jumps out for me. I'm self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. That's really interesting language, I think, to be self-sufficient, yet it's talking about the sufficiency of Christ. Maybe that seems a little bit paradoxical, like they're opposing things. What's going on here? Well, earlier on in Philippians 2 verse 13, Paul encourages us to work out our salvation for it is God who works in us. And I think that kind of partnership is echoed in this self-sufficiency and Christ's sufficiency. This internal reality of God working in us will have tangible outward actions as we work out our salvation. There is the divine involved, there is our human self involved as well. There is a partnership going on that I think is key in us knowing this learned contentment. You see, Paul's use of self-sufficiency here isn't about an independence or a self-reliance. He's not saying that he's learned contentment through his own wisdom, his own striving, his own strength, his own control, his own rationale, which was a Stoic philosophy being promoted and expounded by um, his contemporary Greek thinkers. He's talking, I think, about a mystery of the partnership within for each one of us. That God works in us, Holy Spirit dwells in us, that we get to partner with that. So as Holy Spirit works in us then, our partnership with that work produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And I think thankfulness, generosity, humility, the ability to take our thoughts captive, All of these things, these outward actions, I think are key in taking us to a point of knowing contentment based on the sufficiency of Jesus. Holy Spirit transforming us within is probably an idea that many of us are really familiar with. And um, I wonder, maybe overly familiar, maybe it even feels pretty ordinary and commonplace. Yet I'm struck again in realising how utterly precious and extraordinary this work of Holy Spirit within is, this the fact that we get to enter into this divine human partnership. The transformative work of Holy Spirit as he reveals Jesus to us, in us and through us, is something to be treasured, to be explored and to be given space, not to be taken for granted. How do we do this? There's two things that I'd, I'd like to put to you. I think part of treasuring this divine human partnership within is living with a constant awareness of Jesus in and through us and in the world around us. My friend Mark introduced me to the work of a man named Thomas R. Kelly a little while back, who was an American Quaker teacher and writer. And he describes this this constant awareness of Jesus as including little whispered words of adoration, of praise, of prayer, of worship breathed all through the day. I love that sentiment, that as we go about the tasks of our day, we breathe worship. We keep our heart consistently postured towards him, whether I'm at work, whether I'm driving, whether I'm getting my kids dinner, 
and trying to organise getting them into bed, which is a mission, I'll tell you. Whether I'm meeting a friend, whether I'm hoovering, like no activity is too consuming or too mundane for my heart to not be in a position of being postured before the Lord and bowed before him. A second aspect is one that has come um, through John and I've been really challenged these past couple of years in his practice of drawing on ancient traditions of structured prayer, of contemplation and of silence. I love the Monday Thursday reflection, particularly that guided silence part. If you haven't checked that out, I'd really encourage you to go and do that, of sitting quietly before the Lord, focusing our whole attention on him. How often do we do that? Perhaps that's something you, you do regularly. It is already part of your daily rhythm of life. For me, it hasn't been. And for the past few months, I've changed how I've started my day. And I am painfully aware that what I am about to say is in no way groundbreaking and that many of you watching will have demonstrated a far greater level of faithfulness in this journey than, than I have. I'm right at the beginning. But maybe you need somewhere to start too. So this is how I begun. I sit quietly before the Lord, I read a psalm, I read part of a gospel, perhaps part of a letter from Paul or a different part of scripture. I offer to God what's in my heart, I say the Lord's prayer and I sit quietly again. It takes minutes. To be honest with you, it doesn't feel overly significant in the moment. But as the days and the weeks and the months have gone by, and I know John would say the same in his journey of structured prayer as well, I can feel something changing in my perspective and in my heart. The American Quaker who I, I mentioned before, Thomas Kelly, um, once he died, his family put together his um, poetic writings to form two devotionals. One of them is called The Eternal Promise. And in there, he captures something of the beauty and significance of silence before the Lord in cultivating this human divine partnership within, of creating space for it. I'm going to read um, part of that writing. Periods of quieter meditation should be part of normal living for all who would go down into central silences which are to be found in the heart of God. And then steals in again and again a heavenly warmth, a sweet assurance, an invigorative solidity, a constructive integration of the will, a burning love for God, a falling of the scales from the eyes so that one sees the world anew, simply, directly, as if through the eyes of the God of love. In periods of relaxed listening and inspectancy, the silence within us seems to merge with a creative silence within the heart of God, and we hear eternity's whispers, and we become miracles of eternity breaking into time. Live a listening life. Order your outward life so that nothing drowns out the listening. I feel emotional every time I read that. To live a listening life. Gosh, what a privilege it is that we get to hear eternity's whispers and that through us, we get to demonstrate that we get to be this eternity breaking into our world because that is how God operates, is through his people. 
I think the things that Thomas Kelly has captured here is absolutely interwoven in what it looks like and is treasuring this partnership going on within. And I don't think we are going to discover the sufficiency of Jesus if we do not spend time getting to know him. I think it will remain a mystery, a secret that we've never learned. Yet the invitation is there for us to learn that secret too. But that's not where the partnership ends, is it? Paul hasn't said that the secret to his contentment was drawing on the strength of Jesus as an end in itself. It's so that he could do the things that he's been called to do. That's where there is this self-involved, our end of the partnership, as we display with outward actions the sufficiency of Jesus within. And at this point, I'd like us to consider ourselves um, on a very human level. Anyone that knows me knows that I am pretty real with thinking about ourselves in all of our humanity, with the richness that brings, but also sometimes the trickiness that brings. And I think one of the hardest aspects of our humanity, which shapes our part of and our response to this human divine partnership within, or at least it is in my experience, is often less about actual circumstances and is more about how I feel about them. It's my emotional reaction, particularly to harder situations, which means that the secret of the sufficiency of Jesus as the source of my contentment can feel pretty hard to be grasped. The contentment that Paul talks about here is often linked to a posture of thankfulness. And I do think those two things are absolutely linked, contentment and thankfulness. And thankfulness and rejoicing are key themes in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He tells us in verse four of chapter four to rejoice in the Lord always. And elsewhere in another one of his letters in 1 Thessalonians, he says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. I wonder though, whether we sometimes as Christians interpret these verses as meaning that we need to be continuously positive, no matter what is facing us. But I don't think Paul is talking about a false forced positivity here, which hinders us from living in the world as we may find it, which at points might feel pretty painful and messy, which then causes us to deny how we feel. It creates a cognitive dissonance that makes us fragile as we have these emotions going on within with no way of being released. So here's my question that I've been pondering for a long time. Can we feel and process harder or more uncomfortable emotions Anger, grief, loneliness, loss, disappointment, feeling overwhelmed, those kind of emotions, can we really feel them yet still know contentment based on the sufficiency of Jesus? Can those two things coexist at the same time? This tension, because quite frankly to me, it does seem like a tension, is something, like I said, that I have grappled with. But I've heard something recently which has helped me take a step forward in holding this tension. And maybe it will be helpful to you as well. A psychologist named Dr. Susan David has done a body of research on understanding emotions as data and not directives, meaning that emotions are there and are a gift, a God-given gift, I believe, all emotions, to help inform us, to help guide us and to help us learn. But they are not there to direct our choices and they do not own us. I think that's a really important distinction. She's building on the work of a man named, Doc, um, named Viktor Frankl, who was a, a neurologist, a psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. And he is broadly attributed to having said this, 
Between stimulus, so that a situation or a circumstance, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So as Dr. David's research goes, and I am hugely condensing down something that I would really encourage you to go and explore more if this interests you, but she says that we can create this space in the following ways. To acknowledge what we feel without judgment, recognizing that emotions do not hold moral value in and of themselves. They're not either good or bad. Yes, there are some that are easier to experience and others that are harder to experience, but they don't hold a level of morality. Secondly, we can create this space by being curious about our emotions to help us accurately name them, first of all, but also to help us question what value set they are signposting us to. So a set of questions I asked myself the other day as I could feel frustration rapidly building is to stop and ask myself, what is my frustration telling me is important to me? What values is it pointing me to? It's helpful. It helped me have a far more constructive conversation with John as a result. It might feel like it's strange to ask these kind of questions about something we're feeling, but I think we have the parent authority to within ourselves to be curious about this kind of thing. And thirdly, we can create this space by owning what we're feeling without becoming it. And we can do that by making really small shifts in our language. So for example, hear the difference between I'm feeling frustrated to I am frustrated. It's a tiny shift, but can you hear the linguistic space it creates between ourselves and the emotion we're feeling? So as we practice these things, the space that is then created means that we can have space for a choice. Will we be driven by our emotions as we face harder situations, which often, although I appreciate not always, but are often fleeting and pass in their intensity? Or will we be driven by our values, which are much less changing and changeable? Now, we as followers of Jesus, we, we all in this room, we might have different words that we use for our value set. We might put them in a different order of importance. But in essence, I think we, as knowing Jesus, our values are derived from the fact of who he is and who we are in him. We get to choose our response based on the divine partnership at work within us. So I have the power, the authority and the agency to choose according to my identity and freedom in Jesus. But the only reason I can do that is because of the sufficiency of his life, his death and his resurrection. Do you see the partnership at work? It's all about the sufficiency of Jesus, yet it's all about myself as well and the choices that I make too. So we're able to give thanks in all circumstances, not because the circumstances in and of themselves necessarily seem particularly worthy of rejoicing, but because we have a deeper set of values that point us to the way, the love, the truth and the light of Jesus. We're able to learn contentment during all seasons of life, not because we feel happy, with everything that comes our way, but because we're able to hold and acknowledge those harder situations, those harder emotions that might come as a result. And as we create space, insert our value, our belief and our faith in the sufficiency of Jesus. 
That's where our contentment lies. Finally, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. What is it we gain? Why is this type of contentment with the divine sufficiency of Jesus as its foundation, partnering with our choices, why is it so worth us learning? Well, I think this contentment frees us from this elusive idea of more, which is where we started. It frees us from the lie that this more somehow equals that we ourselves are more as a result. There is no truth in that. Secondly, this contentment roots us in the present and tethers us to what is, not to what isn't. It demands that we acknowledge what we have in the here and the now. This contentment protects us from comparison as a result, I think, enabling us to see our own circumstances healthily and hold our perceptions of others and their situations well. And following on from that, it turns us away from grumbling and complaining, which Paul has already warned us against earlier on in his words to the Philippians. I think a yes to cultivating contentment is an automatic no to responding to situations with grumbling and with complaining. This type of contentment allows us to experience God's goodness and faithfulness without us placing parameters on what we think that goodness ought to look like. And it releases us from worry and from anxiety of what is to come. Jesus never promised that we would know everything that every day would hold and that all of those things would feel wonderful. The writer of Hebrews says, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus promised he would be with us always, in every situation, in every circumstance, whether it's our best day, whether it's our worst day, or whether it's any of the days in between. This contentment enables us to remain in harder situations with a deep peace that guards our heart and mind, like Sam spoke about a couple of weeks ago because we're not requiring circumstances to change as quickly as possible in order to know contentment. And finally, I think this type of contentment, it helps us to offer peace and hope to others as we walk together. If we can hold on to the tension of pain, of difficulty or of facing uncertain outcomes, yet know a deep contentment for ourselves in the midst of that, we'll be people who can walk with others in the same way without being tempted to offer quick fix solutions and rescue them as quickly as possible. I look at this list and I'm aware that I'm sure there'd be more to add, but I want this type of contentment more in my life. I want to commit to going on to that journey of learning this type of contentment. I am more aware now than I ever have been that I need a contentment that is based with the sufficiency of Jesus as its foundation. And I want us to be a church family that does that together that encourages one another to pursue this contentment together, wherever we find ourselves and with whatever is facing us. So I'd love to invite you to respond to this. Andy and the band are gonna lead us in another song, Jesus Be the Centre. And I want us to use this as a prayer for ourselves, for one another, a prayer where we can fix our whole attention and focus on him who is so worthy of our whole heart being postured towards him. 
So let's use this then as a declaration over ourselves. Let's use this as a prayer over ourselves so that Holy Spirit can reveal the sufficiency of Jesus for every one of us with whatever it is we're facing and we can draw on his strength and his peace.